over the years that I've had the privilege of pastoring in this university parish. My heart has sensed a growing burden for revival at Andrews University. There is no question in my mind that this institution was raised up by God for a legacy of leadership for our global community of faith. But as the years go by, I wonder, I wonder about myself. I wonder about us. Are we drifting from our divine destiny? Preoccupied with our financial and institutional survival? Distracted by the siren songs of a morally fallen culture and society. I just keep asking myself, am I being lulled to sleep? Are we being lulled to sleep when in fact the times are calling for what could be, what should be our finest hour? And as I've searched my own heart, I've been earnestly praying of late that the Spirit of God would awaken within me, would awaken within us corporately this hunger for Him. That He would somehow revive our flagging spirits, restore our moral vision and reignite our spiritual mission. I know I'm not alone in those prayers. Our pastoral staff has been on our knees recently, earnestly praying. I know there are men, women, and young adults on this campus and about this community who also are praying. At the beginning of the school year, three young freshman men came into my office their young hearts burdened for the spiritual revival of this institution. After opening convocation at Andrews University, a graduate student came into my office and he said, Pastor, what are we going to do? What is it going to take? It is in this context of a deep seeking after God. Seeking for revival, seeking for reformation on this campus, that this series, The Chosen, is being shared, you and I together, so that none might be lost, so that all might sense God's calling to the chosen. And now in this series, we come to four communal realities about life in this institution. These presentations are going to be controversial. I understand that. But you ask the questions. Students, faculty, and community members alike, when we surveyed this congregation this last spring, you raised the questions and now we are going to explore for the answers. Four of them tucked inside the series of The Chosen. And in the second service only, 
We will end each presentation as we will today with live Q&A. Question number one, what about the spirit of prophecy at Andrews University? Today's presentation, how to stone the prophet. Question number two, what about drinking and diet at Andrews? Presentation, how to eat, drink and be merry without getting stoned. I'm glad you got it. (laughs) Question number three, what about dress and jewelry at Andrews University? How much of naked is acceptable? And finally, question number four. What about sex and sexuality at Andrews? How to live without sex for a while? I hope you'll join me for all four of these aspects of communal life that I believe are part and parcel of any reformation and revival that we are waiting for, that we are praying for at Andrews University. Let's pray. Oh God, hear our prayers and revive our soul. As a university, as a congregation, as a denomination, as a civilization, may the glory of the living God illumine our minds. May the spirit of the living Christ possess our lives as never before for the honor of your kingdom and for the sake of your glory. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why anybody in his right mind would ever want to be a leader is beyond me. Huh? I mean, I pulled out a piece of paper this last week and I decided to write down all the leadership crises that Moses went through leading that pack of the children of Israel across those hot desert sands for 40 years. I started writing them down. When I got through, I could not believe my eyes. Twelve of them, twelve major leadership crises that Moses, twelve showdowns in the desert that Moses had to encounter. Number one, before they've even crossed the Red Sea, they're out. Ten supernatural plagues have liberated the children of Israel. They're coming to the Red Sea. The Egyptians are behind and the people cry out. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here so that we might be buried? Leadership crisis number one. Crisis number two. After, supernaturally, the Red Sea is parted. They get on the other side. No food. What is the problem? If only we could be back by the flesh pots of Egypt. God says, all right, I'll give you men. Crisis number three. They run out of water. Now, God has prepared the way for them every step of the way. But now, again, the crisis. And this time, they threaten to stone Moses. Crisis number four. Where is he? Forty days. We haven't seen hide nor tail of him. Tell you what, Aaron, give us a God. Give us something golden. Give us something to follow. Crisis number four. The meltdown of the community of faith after the Ten Commandments have been verbally, personally spoken by God himself. Crisis number five. This is, this is incredible. This crisis number five of leadership got so bad that you'll find it in Numbers 11. Moses goes to God and he says, kill me, kill me, just kill me now. Let's get it over with. That's how bad it was. Crisis number six. Crisis number six. Ooh. They wanted meat. We're tired of this manna. Give us meat. Crisis number seven, his own flesh and blood. Crisis number eight. This is the major, major meltdown. The 12 spies come back. We can't do it. We can't go in. 
They want to stone him again. Crisis number nine, Korah, Datham, Abiram challenges leadership. Earth swallows them. The very next day, crisis number 10, the people say, you, Moses, you killed those guys. Crisis number 11, the leader himself melts down, casts disrepute upon the name of God and forfeits the promised land. Crisis number 12, the people, again, no food, no water, and serpents come into the community. Twelve of them, twelve showdowns in the desert. Why? For the life of me, anybody would want to be a spiritual leader is beyond me. But you know what the answer is? The answer is, ah, because when you've been called by God to be a prophet, you have to be willing to pay the price of that divine calling. Of course, they're going to reject you. Of course, they'll spit in your face. But when you're called, you're called. You got to do what you got to do. Open your Bible with me to crisis number seven. Crisis number seven. Numbers chapter 12. Third. Fourth. Fourth book of the Pentateuch. Numbers chapter 12. What's the page number for those of you that are grabbing your pew Bible? Because you've got to follow this story. We're going to stick to this story. Number chapter 12, it will be page 102 in your pew Bible. Same translation that I'll be reading here. The New King James Version. Take a look at this story. Crisis number 7. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. From the Hebrew, it is clear that Miriam is the instigator of this crisis. She is listed first, and the verb is both feminine and singular. Both older brother and older sister, Moses' older brother and sister, are involved, but Miriam leads the way. Moses' wife, Zipporah, let me just remind you, is the daughter of Jethro, the Midianite. They are direct descendants of Father Abraham, but apparently her skin is darker than the Hebrew skin. And so she's referred to here as a Cushite or an Ethiopian. Miriam uses that little, that little visible difference as a pretext for her jealousy for her kid brother's high and uplifted role of leadership. Obviously, Miriam is jealous of Moses. Verse 2. And so they, that would be Abe, Aaron and Miriam. And so they said... Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Aren't we pretty important too? Huh? And the Lord heard it. I want you to catch that last line. And the Lord heard it. Because private criticism of a leader is very public to God. You may have thought that your backroom conversations and private emails against that leader were hidden from ear and eye. But there is the watcher of Israel for whom such criticism is very public indeed. I have chosen in my brief sojourn on this earth to abide by David's policy with King Saul. Rotten, fallen king. But David said, I will not put forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. So backroom scuttlebutt and underground campaigns against any leader, I will not participate in such duplicitous action. And I encourage you to do the same. Verse 3. Now, oh, by the way. Verse 3 is an oh, by the way. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. 
Let me remind you that Moses was not naturally humble. He was not naturally meek, as his murder of the Egyptian taskmaster 40 years earlier certainly proves. It took 40 long years in the wilderness for God to instill in this future leader the critical virtue of humility and meekness. You can't lead without it. Oh, you can throw your weight around without it. But nobody will really follow you in the end. It is only a meek man. It is only a meek woman that we will follow. One commentator put it this way. Only a meek or humble man knows how to be submissive to God and to his subordinates. And at the same time to be a courageous and dynamic leader. End quote. All right. And now comes God's woodshed. You ready for this? They're going to the woodshed. Verse four. And suddenly... I wouldn't want to have been there. I wouldn't want to have been there. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three come out. Verse five. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and he called Aaron and Miriam. You too, you come forward. And they both went forward. And then verse six, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Let me just tell you something, Miriam and Aaron, about spiritual leadership. The pre-incarnate Christ is speaking. By the way, 1 Corinthians 10 is clear. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus himself speaking. Let me just tell you, tell you something. You do not call yourself to be a prophet. I do the calling. It may be through a dream. It may be through a vision. But it will only come through me. Ladies and gentlemen, that point is so critical. I wish you'd scribble it down right now in the, uh, in the study guide that you have in your worship bulletin. Will you pull your study guide out, please, right now? Jot that point down. Uh, ushers, thank you for uh, going through one more time because people may not have known what you were going through a moment ago for. Hold your hand up. This is a study guide you're going to want to ruminate on long past this day. Hold your hand up. I see hands all the way to the back. Thank you, ushers. Make sure that everybody gets a study guide. And those of you watching on... Television, let me put our website on the screen for you. And you can go to that website and get the study guide. There it is on the screen, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website. You're looking for the series that we're in the midst of called The Chosen. Title of this teaching today, How to Stone the Prophet. When you click, click, and you get that, it says study guide. You click there. You will have the identical study guide. And you can fill it in with us. Uh, ushers, thank you. Come right back through. Yep, all the way in the balcony. Thank you. Keep your hand up. You will, you will want to have this particular study guide, I do believe. All right, let's fill it out right at the top. Here's the critical point. You don't call yourself to be a prophet. God does the calling, and I'm going to insert here, and not the church. The community of faith does not call anybody to be a prophet. God does the calling. You don't call yourself. God does the calling. Keep your pen moving. In Numbers 12, 6, it's as if Jesus Christ were saying, it may be through a dream, it may be through a vision, but it will only be through me. Only Christ calls to that role of spiritual leadership, to being a prophet. Which, by the way, was precisely Peter's point in his mighty day of Pentecost sermon. Keep your pen moving. Acts chapter 2, which is quoting Joel chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, please note, Peter preaching, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I, 
Notice where it's coming from, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters. Women, too, can receive the gift of prophecy. Please note that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Write it down. It is God who calls men and women to the prophetic office. Let us be clear. God is the one who does the calling, not the church, not you, not me, not nobody, but God himself. All right. Read it again. Verse six. Then God said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Verse seven. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Whoa. Did you catch that? Write it down. God, God calls his prophet my servant He did that of Abraham. He did it of Job. He does it of Moses. In other words, keep your pen moving. A prophet is under the personal employ of the almighty God. Nobody else may understand him. Everybody else may criticize her. But the prophet answers directly to God himself. In fact, jot this down. Uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 8 in the Hebrew reads literally, I speak with him mouth to mouth. I know the Bible says face to face, but the Hebrew is literally mouth to mouth. To mouth. Keep writing. In other words, for a prophet, God communicates mouth to mouth, whereas for you and me, he communes heart to heart. You see, a prophet experiences through a vision, through a dream, through some internal expression. The prophet experiences direct and specific communication from God. And you're saying, hey, but pastor, I I do, too. I get impressions from God. Yep, you're right. You and I do. God may impress us. Hey, I'm just getting ready to pick that up, but it belongs to my neighbor. And the spirit says, hey, that belongs to somebody else. Don't you dare take it. I get impressions from God and so do you. But the difference between you and me and a prophet is God comes along to the prophet and the prophet says, I not only know what you were going to do. I know what you took and I know what you took. So that when Ananias and Sapphira are standing in front of Peter, he says, hey, guys, this is wonderful. What a what a what a wonderful Generous gift to the church. Is this everything? Oh, yes, it is. Is this everything? Oh, but of course it is. You're giving everything to God, but of course we have. Peter then looks into their faces. How long will you lie to the Holy Spirit? The feet of the men that just buried your husband are at the door, Sapphira, and they're going to bury you now. Boom, boom, she goes down. I don't have that gift. I'd like to have it when I drive through traffic in Bering Springs, but I do not have that gift. And neither do you. Why? Because we, it's a little heart-to-heart communion with the Holy Spirit. It's mouth-to-mouth. Direct. Direct communication. Moses, in his farewell address, the book of Deuteronomy, which happens to be our, our uh, theme book for this series. Go back to Deuteronomy. Keep your finger right here because we've got to finish this story. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, I wish you'd take a look at this. Just go over one more book. Deuteronomy 18. What's the page number in the Pew Bible? Page 136. All right, Deuteronomy 18. Drop down to verse 15. Moses, in our theme book, makes, makes some very significant observations about those who are called to be a prophet. Take a look at this. Drop down to verse 15, Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Now, in my translation, that prophet is a capital P. 
A prophet like me from your midst, from your brothers, him you shall hear. And in the New Testament, it is clear the people knew this statement in Deuteronomy and believed that the Messiah himself would be the capital P, the ultimate prophet. And so they said, Where, is this the prophet? John 6, is this the prophet? So Moses says, God's going to do it. Now drop down to verse 18. God is now speaking. Moses is quoting God. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Verse 19. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name. Please notice it's very direct. What he's saying is from me, directly from me. Whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Verse 21. And if you say in your heart, hey, how am I going to know whether this word is from the Lord or not? Here's God's here's Moses response. Verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. I.e. Write the point down, please. Moses point is crystal crystal clear. God communicates directly to and through his prophets to and through. Couldn't be couldn't be clearer, could he? His very thoughts, his very words communicated through, through the prophet. Now, there's one other statement. Just turn a few pages back to chapter 13. One other critical piece we've got to put in here and then we'll wrap the story. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. There's three verses here. Take a look at this. So Moses is talking about prophets again. A little bit earlier, verse verse one of chapter 13, Deuteronomy, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, he makes a supernatural prediction and it comes to pass of which he spoke to you. And then he says, let us go after, let us go after other gods, which you have not known and let us serve them. Here's the point. Verse three, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord. Your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. Ladies and gentlemen, in the Christian community today, this is a no brainer. There are men and women who are claiming to be prophets. If you watch your religious television, you will see them on television. You listen, you read the tabloids, you'll read them. Even in national news, once in a while, you'll run into somebody who says, I am a prophet of the Lord. Moses is clear here, and I need you to jot this down. If a prophet displays supernatural powers, but teaches contrary, right in the word contrary, teaches contrary to the word of God, we are to reject that prophet as false. By the way, prophets ought not to be judged by predictions at all. Do you know that Moses and John the Baptist, the two greatest prophets in the entire corpus of sacred history, neither one made a prediction. So it it isn't a prediction that makes you a prophet. Prophets ought not to be judged by prediction. They ought to be judged by faithfulness. Faithfulness to the Word of God. Oh, and by the way, speaking of the Word of God... You don't have to write a book in the Word of God to be a great prophet. In fact, Jesus said of John the Baptist, John the Baptist or the Baptizer, this is the greatest prophet who has ever lived, bar none, and he never wrote a book that made it into the canon. You don't have to write a book in the Bible to be a prophet. But the point is faithfulness, faithfulness to the Word of God. How does the story end? Very quickly, take a look at the end. Go back to uh, where you were holding your finger. 
Let's go back to verse 9 of Numbers chapter 12, verse 9. So, God makes this, makes this statement about being a prophet. Then verse 9, So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed, in verse 10, And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow, and then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. Jot it down. Write it down. Miriam's fundamental error was disrespect for and rebellion against God's lawfully constituted authority in his prophet. That was the issue. She rejected the prophet's authority for her life. And oh my, Aaron suddenly gets it. And he gets it fast. Verse 11. And so Aaron said to Moses, by the way, remember, these are the two. This is this is Moses's older brother and Miriam is his older sister. These are the two that are saying, hey, come on, can't we lead just like our kid brother? But now notice the reformation in Aaron's heart when he comes to Moses in verse 11 and he says to Moses, oh, my Lord. He's talking about his kid brother here. Oh, my Lord. He got the point. Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Would you please note it as you write it down? It is both foolish and a sin to reject the prophet of God. Write it down. We have done foolishly. We have sinned. Which is why God's query bears repeating again there in verse 8. Jot it down. Why then were you not afraid? To speak against my servant. Hmm? Well, Moses cries out to God on behalf of his older sister Miriam. And in seven days she was healed of her leprosy. Hallelujah. The end. Story number two. Story number two. Once upon a time... There was a second great movement just like the children of Israel that was raised up by God to lead His people into the promised land. They too were the chosen. Not for their significance, for they were the most insignificant of all religious bodies. They were chosen by God for the sake of His passionate mission to save a final generation on earth and lead it back to Him and His truth. And because they were the chosen, they too were sent a prophet who did not call herself a prophet. For her divine mission entailed much more than a prophet who instead referred to herself as the messenger of the Lord. Can you get there from here? Can you build a biblical case for that prophetic gift today? Absolutely. Keep that pen moving. Let's go. We're not going to look these verses up. They're all there in your study guide. Amos chapter 3. We'll put it on the screen for you. Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord does nothing. Write it in. The Lord does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. Keep your pen moving. In every major epic of sacred history. Help me check this out. In every major epic of sacred history, God has raised up a prophet to prepare His people for what is impending. Right in the word impending. Now, I need you to help me here. So, something's coming. When the flood was coming, who did God raise up? Hmm? Whom did God raise up? Noah. When God was going to raise up a chosen people, who was the father of Israel? Whom did God raise up? Father Abraham. He was a prophet. When the Exodus came, whom did God raise up? Moses. When the monarchy came to Israel, whom did God raise up? Samuel. 
When the exile came for that kingdom, both kingdoms, whom did God raise up? A handful of them, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and on and on. When the Messiah was coming the first time, whom did God raise up? John the baptizer. When the gospel was to go to the Gentiles and all the world, whom did God raise up? Paul. When the Messiah is coming the second time, whom will God raise up? Question. Would it not be logical to conclude that even as he has raised up the prophetic gift over and over and over again, the most glorious event in human history, would he leave it? Would he leave it without that prophetic gift manifested at the end of time? The book of Revelation comes along and says, no, he would not. It's a no brainer. You can conclude it without revelation, but let me show it to you in Revelation. Keep your pen moving. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, the apocalypse declares, and the dragon, that would be Satan, was enraged with a woman. That's the community of God. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring at the end of time who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony, write that word, testimony of Jesus. Testimony of Jesus Christ. So we ask the question, what does the testimony of Jesus Christ mean in the apocalypse? We let the book of Revelation interpret itself. Keep your pen moving. Chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Write it in. Spirit of prophecy. By the way, Revelation 22, 9 links the testimony of Jesus to the presence of a prophet in the community of faith. So it's the presence of a prophet. The testimony of Jesus. I.e., now you fill this in, one of the identifying marks of God's community of faith and truth at the end of time will be the presence of his prophetic gift in their midst. I mean, come on, folks. Is it not utterly consistent with the divine modus operandi for God to raise up a messenger to prepare to make ready a people prepared for the Lord? Wouldn't it make sense? But of course, having having graciously given the prophetic gift for every other major epic in sacred history, why would not this same God bestow that same gift for the most crucial time in human history? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. Amos 3, 7, surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Her name was Ellen White. She was a woman of remarkable spiritual gifts who lived most of her life in the 19th century. Yet through her writings and public ministry, she has made a revolutionary impact on millions of people right into the 21st century. From the age of 17 until she died 70 years later, Ellen White received nearly 2,000 visions and dreams from a few moments, varying in length, to nearly four hours. It was those revelations that resulted in a prodigious literary output that includes today 100 books available in English titles, 55,000 pages of manuscript, 5,000 periodical articles. One of her books, her life-changing masterpiece on the Christian life, Steps to Christ. When I was a graduate student here at Andrews University, I got a hold of that book. And reading that book was a catalyst for a reconversion in my life to the Lord Jesus. If you don't have that little book, Steps to Christ, right afterwards, after our Q&A, you get one. I'll have one for you here right at the front.
This little book alone has been translated into 135 different languages on earth. Prodigious she was. In fact, she may well be the most translated woman writer in literature and the most translated American author of either gender. As a further consequence of that prophetic gift, she helped raise up a Christian movement today that offers the largest Protestant educational system in the world, including Andrews University. As a result of that gift, this Christian movement today offers the most extensive Protestant health system on earth, including Loma Linda University and Hospital. National Geographic magazine two years ago carried a cover story extolling the health benefits of the health message Ellen White received and championed during her lifetime. A message, by the way, far ahead of the medical and nutritional knowledge of her day, but validated in our generation by extensive scientific research and study. As a result of her visionary leadership, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which she helped found, is in more nations on earth than any other Protestant denomination. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not believe there is a human explanation for so prolific and fruitful a life and ministry. Do her writings then take the place of the Bible in my life, in my church? Absolutely not. You know me better than that. In fact, you know what? You know how she referred to her writings? She described her writings as the lesser light that points to the, to the greater light. Like the moon keeps reflecting back to the glory of the sun. I can personally testify, though, that her writings constantly point the reader to Jesus and His Word. I have not read a more passionately Christ-centered author in my life. And I have read hundreds and hundreds of authors. Her love for Jesus and her passion for pointing lost people to her Savior have deeply influenced my walk with God. Two friends of mine, Roger Dudley and Des Cummings, Jr., Undertook a study some years ago where they surveyed more than 8,200 members of 193 Seventh-day Adventist churches here in North America. Twenty different categories of spiritual life were being measured in this survey, including one question that went like this. Have you read the writings of Ellen White or not? Do you read them or not? The results are stunning. I want you to jot the numbers down and you can go home and cogitate on this. Jot the numbers down in your study guide. 82%, write that in, 82% of the regular readers of Ellen White's writings assess their relationship with Jesus as intimate. The figure was only 56% for the non-readers of Ellen White in our community of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a 26% difference. Number two, write it down. 82% of the regular readers of Ellen White indicated a high degree of assurance of being right with God compared to 59% of the non-readers. Number three, readers of Ellen White were 24% more involved in Christian outreach and service activities than were the non-readers. And finally, number four, 82% of those who read Ellen White regularly also have daily personal Bible study as compared to 47% for the non-readers, exactly the opposite effect which false prophets tend to have upon their followers. False prophets draw you away from Holy Scripture. Follow me. Follow my teaching. The very opposite. Within this community of faith, those who read her have a deeper relationship in Holy Scripture with the living God.
leading to this conclusion. Jot it down. In every one of the 20 spiritual life categories surveyed, the regular readers of Ellen White scored higher than the non-readers. Dudley and Cummings, in their conclusion, wrote, and I'll put their words on the screen for you. Seldom does a research study find the evidence so heavily weighted toward one conclusion. In the church growth survey on every single item that deals with personal attitudes or practices of spiritual life, the member who regularly studies Ellen White's books tends to rank higher than does the member who reads them only occasionally or never. End quote. Now listen to me carefully. If I were the enemy of Christ... If I were the enemy of the chosen, you can be certain I would do everything in my power to destroy anything that would lead a person closer to my arch nemesis, Christ of the kingdom of heaven. I would do everything to destroy that which would draw people closer to him. And by the way, if I were the enemy, I would be particularly furious at this gift because of the devastating way it repeatedly exposes my diabolical modus operandi. I would in particular, I would in particular set my sights on a little book called Great Controversy because of its searing revelation of my end time strategies. It's a no brainer. I would work hard 24-7 to stone the prophet and destroy the prophet's influence in that community. I'd do it with an innuendo. I'd do it with a flippant remark. I'd do it with email. I'd do it with as many websites as I could diabolically raise up. I'd do it in a private conversation. I'd do it with a snicker. I'd do it with a laugh. I would make certain that anybody inquiring, any young mind still open to the possibility of influence, I would make certain that the door is shut in that young adult's mind. I would. If I were the enemy, a century ago, these words were written. They're in your study guide. You need to fill it out. The devil's M.O. exposed. Listen to this. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none, zero, nada, effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Then going on beyond your study guide on the screen where there is no vision, this quotation continues, the people perish. That's Proverbs 29. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony, end quote. Let me tell you a story right now. In a previous parish where I served, there was a man who got swept up in a, in a, in a, in a new teaching that had, that had come discarding the... Bible truth about divine cleansing of a heavenly sanctuary. He got swept up. We were friends. He got swept up in this. And uh, eventually, in response, he threw out Ellen White and the church. All of it. No more. I've had it. Two decades go by. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, just a few months ago, I get a packet 
from this very individual. Turns out he's been watching TV. Saw some of our presentations on creationism. And said, Dwight, I thought you might like to know that there is a whole lot of evidence out here that proves that there is no creation. And in fact, that proves that there is no creator and that there is no God at all. And I was dumbfounded. This man prayed fervently when I knew him. No God. Nothing. And then I remembered, a century ago, this very regression, regression was predicted. And these words are so important that they're in your study guide, the last quotation you have. It is Satan's plan, the very pattern of regression being exposed here. It is Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the testimonies. All right. Now, here's the key word. Next. Once you do that, there's a next step. Watch the steps now. Next. Follow skepticism in regard to the vital points of our faith, the pillars of our position. Then. Please notice this is regression. Now, there's another step. Then doubt as to the Holy Scriptures And then, there's another step, then the downward march to perdition, end quote. I've heard that word perdition before. I heard it on the lips of Jesus. Do you know when Jesus, when he was praying in his high priestly prayer in in, uh, John 17, he referred to Judas as the son of what? The son of perdition. Isn't that amazing? The son of perdition. Judas, who was called to be a part of the inner circle of Christ, but who began to doubt the testimony of Jesus. He said, ah, come on, it can't be. And then the doubting of the testimony led to the doubting, you know, maybe the mission. Maybe his mission is really not that big. And then the doubting to the mission led to, maybe he's not who he says he is. And after that, there is now a tumble, no God, no life, and he hangs himself. And it all begins, isn't that amazing? It all begins with the rejection of the testimony of Jesus. There are two reasons why Judas did not want the testimony of Jesus. I wonder if these two reasons are applicable today. Two reasons. Reason number one, the testimony of Jesus cut across Judas' private life. And I have wondered at times when I hear those who are making a rather big show about their personal convictions, I've wondered to myself, what is there? Could there be something that has cut across? I hate it. When you tell me not to do something, I'll just take you out of my picture. I don't have to deal with you anymore. That was what led Judas. It cut his greed. Jesus never in public exposed him. Just little stories. And then he'd look at Judas like, I know your hand is in the till, boy. It cut across his personal private practice. And number two, it challenged Judas' theological paradigm. The paradigm doesn't fit with what I believe the Messiah should be. Therefore, I reject it. I wonder again if because I have already formed a theological paradigm, whether I too am quick to then reject the prophetic gift as challenging my precious paradigm. The son of perdition, the downward march. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? It is no wonder that 2 Chronicles 20.20 reads the way it does. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe His prophets and you shall prosper. Listen to me closely. My last words. Please listen closely. 
the writings of the messenger either. Now, C.S. Lewis did this. The writings of the messenger either bear the signet of God or the signet of Satan. You can't say, oh, a little bit of both. Foolish. They cannot be both. A good tree cannot bring forth corrupt fruit. Can it? So here's the point. Maybe it is time for you to quit taking somebody else's word for it and taste the fruit yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't you take my word for it. You taste the fruit yourself. This little book, Steps to Christ. You come up. You don't have the book? You see me right after the Q&A. You ask for this. I'll give you one. You go home and see if this little book title will not become a self-fulfilling prophecy in your life and you will find new steps, deeper steps to a growing friendship with the Lord Jesus. And by the way, you're watching on television right now. You go to that phone number you'll see at the end. You call that number and I'll make sure you get one of these books too. Taste it for yourself. Forget other people's opinions. Taste the fruit for yourself. I have and I believe. Let us pray. Oh God. Holy Father. Please. We cannot let others make the decisions for us. Not a statement. Not a quotation. Not a website. We must taste ourselves. And so, dear God, this humble prayer for this little community of faith, please, like that old cornflakes commercial said, taste them again for the first time. Come back. Taste the fruit. Is it good fruit from a good tree? And, oh God, I am confident that every man, woman, young adult, and teenager whose mind is open to the Spirit of Jesus, will know whether the testimony of Jesus is true or not. Make it clear. The times are urgent. We need a revival. Do your work in our midst, I humbly pray. And now may the Father who gave the Son And the Son who gave the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who gave the prophets. Guide you and me in the pathway of eternity. Amen.